song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today, Dave. Here we go. The return (laughs) of the exciting anticipatory statement from Nick. I know we're back on track after after a rickety week. We almost came off the rails there talking about Vince Russo, Nick. It's funny that you say that because we're doing Enron this week, but I think more so than basically any other week, we're going to be weaving the story of WCW and Enron together. I think they both represent the end of the monoculture like what happens when people stop understanding how to make money uh or in the case of enron never really understand how to make money and just keep getting lucky over and over again i might even say that for wcw but it's definitely the case for enron things got really real at the end of the night the 1990s and i think they were just completely unable to keep up and i think that's also kind of what you saw with wcw they had both created a very rich and self-insistent uh illusion of success and, and those things really could only last so long and they came cr- crumbling down as you say uh, at approximately the same time and very specifically the uh, actual one of the, the the main stories that ended up taking down enron was by bethany mclean who actually wrote the book the smartest guys in the room and she's featured very prominently in the documentary uh, the Smartest Guys in the Room, which is directed by Alex Gibney. It's, it's a great documentary. You should check it out. But she wrote her article called uh, Is Enron Overpriced on March 5th of 2001. So it's a very, very similar time period. And like I said, it, I think it's because they had created this illusion based on one or two good ideas that they were a very successful and important company. And I think if you look at uh, the, the one great idea they had, and it's not great, they became commodity traders for natural gas. And and throughout the history of Enron, that's what made money. Almost nothing else made money. And I think if you look at that and you look at the idea of the NWO, they remind me a lot of each other in the sense that they had this one genuinely good idea or they were good at this one specific thing. And and I guess in the case of WCW, you could say writ large, it was not being the WWE and they had nothing else to build off of. So when that stopped being a big enough deal, it brought on the collapse of the entire company. Yeah, definitely. And I think that as I kind of hinted to earlier, there was this like culture of complete denial of anything other than absolute success. So there was, uh, I don't want to say a shortage of canaries in the coal mine, uh, but there was certainly like not anybody who cared whatsoever about the chirping of those canaries because on paper, even though neither company that we're talking about was was really in terms of real productive business. Like neither one of them was really nearly as successful as they pretended to be. And the illusion of that was so powerful that there were, that I think there was a lot of self delusion. And I think there were a lot of people at the top who thought they were richer and more powerful than they really were. So there really was this like rich culture of self delusion that, that I think made it way harder to, to untie the knot at both Enron and WCW. And they thought, and I mean, literally with Enron, they thought they were the smartest guys in the room. They thought they knew better. And, and you see that in wrestling is when people think they know better than the audience, they know better than the actual people that built the industry 
we we talk about this over and over again. This may be like the thesis statement of our wrestle idea of wrestling is that you don't reinvent the wheel you evolve the wheel and what they were trying to do both companies both wcw and enron were trying to do was completely reinvent the wheel and it just was never going to work out they they did not see any value in what had come before them and it was ultimately detrimental to their both their short-term health because they were forced to in a market that required them to do certain things, constantly have to do things like swerves and gimmicks to build up this idea of themselves, to build up the ratings in the case of WCW and in the case of Enron, their stock price. They took all of these shortcuts that ended up just completely ruining them. There is no other... I think the ultimate connection between the two is the idea of using shortcuts to build the long-term value in a company or in an, in a promotion or a television show will never work out in the long term. It really is this idea of like self-delusion, like I said, just sort of like a total confirmation bias and that you're only accepting the kind of positive feedback. You're only looking at the data that backs you up. Like you are successful, therefore you are a genius. Not that you took a shortcut. It is denial of the fact that you took a shortcut that would cause success, you know, regardless of other circumstance. It's the, the, the success is always because you were the genius. And I think that's something that you hear, like if you've been listening to 83 Weeks, like Eric Bischoff's podcast, it's been around for a couple of months ago. It's just really, his his general kind of tone and tenor, there's, there's a lot of like, it's, it was all about great ideas that he and his close friends had together. Like you said, there's this kind of like lack of respect for the way everything works. Like every, and no matter what aspect of the business he's talking about, he like couches everything the same way. He'll start by saying like, well, I wasn't really an ad sales guy and I don't pretend to know a lot in that area, but, and then he talks about how he was smarter than the ad sales people. And he goes, I, you know, I'm not really the booking guy. I tried to stay out of booking meetings, but, and then he explains why he's smarter than all the bookers. He says, I don't know, I'm not, you know, the big network executive guy, but, and then he explains why he's smarter than all the executives. There's this contempt for the establishment and the established order of doing business, uh, kind of duct taped onto this extreme arrogance and self-delusion that I was talking about before. And it's, it's really just a huge mess. And it's crazy that in Bischoff's case, like 20 years later, like he to, to call back to our previous episode, he still likes the smell of the same farts 20 years later. <laughs> and what's sad with, and I think it's both the case with, uh, so there's three main characters in the Enron saga. Um, there is Ken Lay, who is the original CEO, the founder of the company, and he was a PA, he had a PhD. Um, so he's a smart guy book-wise, but he was kind of an incompetent manager. He's considered one of the worst CEOs in American history. And then you have Jeff Skilling, who I think reminds me the most of Bischoff. And Jeff Skilling was an actual smart guy, like got it, but got it in such a way that he thought that he personally could do no wrong. He had this idea, and I, it, it reminds me so much of the idea of that that Bischoff had, which was the idea of guaranteed contracts. What he had was this thing, and it's the worst idea ever in the long term. It's called Mark to Market Accounting. And basically what it is, is if you make a deal in 1984 and you're not going to get paid until 1994, what you do is put on the books in 1984 what you think you will make in 1994 
as actual revenue. That's that's basically what it is. It gets a lot more complicated, but it's basically like, I think this contract I signed today will be worth this much 10 years from now. So I'm just going to write that down as what I think it's going to be. And with the oil market, with the natural gas market, with, with what the value of a performer will be, what they did is they bet Again, short term on the idea that things would never go wrong. It, it was not the straw that broke the camel's back. Like the straw that broke the camel's back might have been AOL, like might have been having ownership that weren't crazy about wrestling. Uh, but really the huge burden that was already on the camel's back before someone put the straw there really was guaranteed contracts and really was guaranteed contracts with creative assurances built into them. And, and giving out those guaranteed contracts, another way that I think that this is an apt comparison, like Skilling and Bischoff are really similar, is that both of them are guys who who were nerds who got convinced that they were jocks. And there's a lot of power. There's a power surge that comes with that, that, that makes people both simultaneously really, really successful and really, really obnoxious and drunk with power. Like Bischoff gave out the guaranteed contracts, and that meant that Paul and Nash and all the cool big young wrestlers were telling everybody that, you know, hey, Eric's a cool guy like us, or they were letting him believe that he was telling people that. Whereas on the other hand, it's like Skilling finds the way to cook the books correctly, and suddenly he's the cool hotshot rising star in the business world. And with Skilling and with Bischoff, they both had the idea to do commodities trading was Skilling's idea. Like he did have a good idea in the same way that Bischoff had a good idea in the NWO but they, and we're going to say this a lot, they just liked the smell of the, that fart. They were like, this is the best smelling fart ever. Let's just keep smelling this. This is all we want to smell. And they trapped themselves in a room with it, to be honest. I don't know how else to put it. They just did not understand that eventually they were going to kill themselves doing that. That eventually what was going to happen is when you have to constantly get value out of a guaranteed contract, that is just guaranteed money for whoever has it. Like what were they, I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were paying every one of Hogan's friends, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They were paying Randy Savage's brother money for no good reason. That's, that's right. They, 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 they signed leaping Lanny, right? I'm not crazy. Uh, you are correct. They did sign Lanny Poffo. Although speaking of Eric Bischoff trying to discredit things on his podcast, he recently said that Lanny's money came out of Randy's contract that Randy wanted Lanny to have a job. And when Bischoff said he couldn't justify that, then Randy Savage said, well then take whatever off my contract and give that to him. Now that could be true. Um, it's the first time I've heard that story in 20 years, and I've heard the other version of the story hundreds of times, so who knows? And even if that was the case, just say no. You just say no. You say no. You're not going to – we're not going to have your brother on staff because it makes you feel better. We gave you a contract. You need to earn it. He thought he had become a jock, and it's like, no, those guys were never going to accept you. You were never going to be, as in Skilling's case, as cool as the traders. I said, Jeff, you've got a real problem. The traders, they will cut your throat if they think it will get them to the trough sooner. Jeff was silent and he looked out the window and he looked back at me and he said, yeah, Amanda, you're most likely right. And with, with Bishop, you were never going to be as cool as Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and these actual honest to God jocks who just 
liked entertaining people and cashing checks. Like they were never going to accept you in the way that you needed to be accepted. He could not separate himself from what he perceived himself to be and wanted others to perceive him as. And that's something you see a lot over and over again in business and in wrestling is this idea because wrestling is business. Uh, it's just a micro, it, it's a, both a business in the actual sense, but it's a business in the meta sense that it's this very direct interaction with the market, right? Bischoff every single week in the same way that Skilling every single day had to worry about the stock price Bischoff had to worry about ratings. It was the only way they could keep value going in the company. They couldn't ever have a bad night or slow things down to build the company back up or the show back up. It was just constantly over and over again having to take these terrible deals and do these terrible things and make terrible matches and have terrible ideas just to keep the gravy train going in as much as there was any gravy on the train. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it really speaks to what was kind of going down just like generally in American culture around the turn of the millennium too. Like I remember the, the, the South Park episode, the, it hits the fan where they say shit like 160 something times or whatever the number ultimately is before the end of the episode. And they were just kind of like making a point or, or I guess I assumed at the time they were making a point. I didn't ask uh, Matt and Trey personally, uh, but there was kind of this point being made about just like late 90s, early 2000s culture, how everything was about escalation. And the escalation, uh, while we kind of believe that more stuff is good, but escalation is not always good, uh, even when you're escalating money or even when you're escalating excitement. There actually has to be a plan by which you wind up making more money because of that escalation or by which you, I guess in the case of Enron, it wasn't about like making more money, quote unquote, it was about like running a responsible, honest business. But like when things become about escalation, all that is, is easy to lose sight of all responsibility, whether it's fiscal responsibility, whether it's moral responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. Like when you get just addicted to escalation, that can definitely happen. And that was really prevalent in the culture at the time. They had to keep growing. Everyone had to keep growing. And, and this is the monoculture. You had to, there's a, a story that will always stick in my mind. Uh, it is, I want to say 1990. Oh, it is the issue. Actually, it's funny. It's the issue of Entertainment Weekly with Goldberg on the cover. In it, Sports Night, which is one of my favorite shows of all time, they wrote a piece on Sports Night and how 11 million viewers on a Tuesday night is not enough to sustain a television show on network television. Wow. Dave, if any television show had 11 million viewers on a Tuesday night. Are you telling me that SmackDown isn't doing 11 million viewers every Tuesday night on USA Network? Not even hashtag SmackDown Live with live in all caps? No, it's not. You wish it was, but it's not. And that's what's crazy is like the the culture at that point had become so overgrown. What you had with Enron, the way that they dealt with all of the things that went wrong and all of the money they were losing is they had a special purpose en entity, uh, which uh, was the brainchild of a guy named Andy Fastow, uh, who is the third in the triumvirate of uh, Enron heels. Fastow created hundreds of special companies to perform a magic trick, prop up Enron's stock by making its debt disappear. To outside investors, it looked like cash was coming in the door. In fact, 
Enron was just stashing its debt in Fastow's companies where investors couldn't see it. You know, when you, you'd lost your assets, but you pretended you hadn't. And, and so by insisting that what you had left was still as good as what you had before, you'd really put the first nail in your, old co- in your own coffin. That idea you saw, you saw it with the way that, and this is again, something we talked about last week. You saw it with all the different gimmicks. Actually, no, we didn't. You saw it with like the Judy Bagwell on a forklift. Sorry, I thought it was going to be on a pole. It was on a forklift match. These crazy gimmick matches, the, the vampiro blood shit. Even the Millionaire's Club, is that what they called it? The Millionaire's Club? Mm-hmm. Versus, or the, versus the New Blood, or the New versus Breed? The new Blood. New yeah. Blood. Yeah, that you saw these ever-escalating gimmicks, these ideas that like, oh, we'll just sell them on this new thing that we all kind of know is a crapshoot, but we're going to sell it like it's the best idea we've ever had. Yeah, I think Vampiro is a great example of exactly what you're just saying is they really, really fully flared, like treated Vampiro like he was a main eventer, like he was a really threatening, worthy opponent for Sting. And it's like, my hat's off to them for their their good faith attempt. And I'm not saying that Vampiro wasn't a good performer in his own right or isn't still a good performer in his own right. But it was like, there, there just wasn't that kind of back-end work or there wasn't that background, I should say, work, that work before beforehand that made it feel like that worked like sting and vampiro could go out there and they could do a bunch of scary stuff for vampiro and they could you know have a match out in a graveyard and that should be spooky and cool but like it never really added up because they hadn't really built built the equity first they just kind of jumped into the middle with a lot of this stuff and when we talked about late wcw last week we talked about like a lot of young hungry guys out there trying hard but they had so little support that they really couldn't shine like in spite of their best efforts the trading desk like i said earlier was always successful and wcw always had a strong mid to lower card because they didn't care about it but they knew it was always going to be there more or less but what they try to do what they try to do with these these big time feuds with vampiro and sting and again vampiro's good he's a talented performer it reminds me so much so much of what enron did at the end of their life uh my favorite there's two there's two big ones there's the enron energy services which is it's not a terrible idea which is the idea that they would go to companies and be energy efficient efficiency consultants so they'd basically come in and they'd be like you're wasting this many kilowatt hours here are ways you can reduce your not your carbon footprint but what is what we call it now but your electricity bill just straight up your electricity bill how they would make money doing that they never quite figured out but it was this grain of a good idea this grain of an idea that made sense and that is something that can get you in trouble but like we said, Vampiro and Sting wasn't bad. It just wasn't good. And it wasn't good because they didn't put in the thought beforehand to build up to this idea. They didn't think, well, how are we going to make money with Sting and Vampiro? They just went, they just went, oh, we're going to put Sting and Vampiro together and we'll make money. And that's just not how it worked. And, and say what you will about Vince McMahon, but that is something he never did because he understood how he was making money. What you see with Enron is they never quite understood or accepted, I should say, how they make money. And Vince McMahon never 
strayed from the idea that he made money running a wrestling company that also did a television show. And Bischoff and everyone involved in WCW had no clue how to make money. They made money for two years and basically, I think it was two years, maybe two and a half, and lost tons of money the rest of the time. Yeah, I think part of the problem was is that they like threw a party for themselves for being... Uh, like profitable in the first place because they'd been like such a write-off, such a loss leader for for Turner for so long. But then when they finally did make a little money, they just got like so full of themselves. Like, okay, congratulations. Like you're a modest success relative to the, (laughs) relative to your market. You know what I mean? And, And once again, it was just this real drunkenness with power resulting from just a little bit of success. Like it's crazy in retrospect. And you know me, Nick, I am the furthest thing from a, Vince McMahon cheerleader. But looking back, it is just fatuous that Eric Bischoff presented himself or even aspired to present himself as like a legitimate equal or a legitimate foil to Vince McMahon. Like you were saying before, there were aspects of the job that he was really good at. There were things that he was really good at. But one of the things he wasn't really good at was like doing everything in the way that Vince McMahon does or did. In a sense that like there were a lot of things that fell through the cracks in WCW. And the reason things weren't falling through the cracks in WWF is because there's Vince McMahon and there was a core group of three or four people who he really trusted who made sure that the boat didn't leak. And that was never the case in WCW because you had someone who'd become drunk with just a little bit of success, you know, and suddenly thought that they that they could do it all, that they could compete with, or that they were somehow equal to someone else who who had, you know, at the time already had 20 years in it and really maybe could have run the business by himself had he been hard pressed to. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just crazy looking back on it that he, when he would call Vince out on TV or when he would present himself as an equal, even now when he talks in retrospect about like giving Vince a run for his money or scaring Vince and all that, it's just like, so incredibly arrogant that someone who turned a profit for two years could compare himself to someone who built a regional wrestling promotion into like a huge international conglomerate with its own web app channel, basically. And you know what I mean? Like, it's it's just nuts that he even vaguely compares himself to the Vince McMahon of 1998, you know? Yeah. Vince McMahon is a historically important American businessman, Eric Bischoff is a pretty important guy in the history of wrestling. Like, that's the difference. Vince is literally a self-made billionaire. Like, I understand his dad was running the company, but it was, like you said, a relatively small regional promotion that he actually built himself up into. I, like, Vince... Vince understood that you don't want water in the goddamn boat in the first place. That's the whole point of the boat. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And Eric Bischoff thought, oh, you can just keep bailing out water. You just can keep bailing out water because the ratings will keep us afloat. It's it's crazy because you were mentioning at the beginning of this conversation when you first brought up Bischoff, or I think I brought him up and then you said this, but anyway, his kind of signature accomplishment or signature imprint on the business is the guaranteed contracts. And it's interesting even just to see in the last 20 years how that accomplishment has been walked back. I mean, people do have guaranteed contracts and there is a higher likelihood of them getting, you know, their medical care paid for than ever before in the wrestling business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, even if that's not straight up what we would consider insurance. But the amounts that people in the middle and upper middle are making has gone way down over the last 10 years, 10, 15 years. Like 
there's kind of a higher floor and the ceiling is still really high. But that idea that someone in the middle, like you were saying before, the middle was so important to the success of WCW. I think a, a lot of his biggest contribution in, in terms of getting those big, huge, big deals for everybody, like that's kind of been walked back. And I think that that kind of is emblematic of really, like I said, how his achievements are what they are, but they're not much more than what they are to me. Guaranteed contracts have now become uh, what, what are called downside guarantees, where if you're on the show, you get extra money. If you're not on the show, you get paid, I mean, depending on who you are, but if you're a lower end guy, you get paid like seventy-five dollars to $100,000 a year, which is amazing money. But you're talking about a company with that's worth over a billion dollars. It's not that much money to pay to five people if they're not performing, which is about the number of people. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not a killer amount of money. And that that's in 2018 dollars. That's not in 1998 dollars. They were paying people like hundreds of thousands of dollars to never appear on television or do anything. Like they were paying people just to have them under contract and they had them under contract with the idea that no matter what, they were going to get paid the same amount of money. Like Vince saw that, that idea and went, Oh, you know how you should do that. And then did it. Cause again, Vince's big thing was you keep the water out of the boat and Eric Bischoff and, and skilling and lay and Fastow didn't see the point of if you look at um the company that was going to buy Enron before they realized like this is a terrible idea because you guys are worth absolutely nothing um Dynergy uh Energy Dynergy Incorporated sorry not Dynergy Energy Dynergy Incorporated <laughs> once they saw what was actually going on in Enron they were like what in the fuck are you guys doing why are you paying every executive more than like CEOs of actual companies they overcompensated their their medium performers with stock options that they then basically told them to sell out of so that they wouldn't have to deal with what was coming. They built this culture and it's the same thing with WCW and it's the same thing in a lot of places that fail of, and it goes back to what you said, this idea of invincibility without any evidence that that's going to happen. They uh, presumed or assumed invincibility based on no evidence whatsoever. What you see with Enron is they get more and more desperate. You go from the vampiro of it all to, I swear to God, this is true. And this is my favorite bad business idea maybe ever, which is they wanted to sell broadband access and trade it like a commodity. From 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., we're paying for bandwidth that we are not using. Why? Why? We're paying for something we're not using? Why do we accept things the way they are? If we have a problem, other people do too. There's our market. Why can't we sell the bandwidth to other companies? Make it a commodity, like a pork belly. <laughs> so that they could have internet for cheaper like it's the it fundamentally misunderstands how people actually interact with a thing and and you and you see that in in late period wcw so much i'll say this i don't understand how the internet works like fully neither does the person who came up with that idea <laughs> 
yeah it's um it's really sincerely like it, it, we've both watched the documentary bunch when they start talking about that you're just like what the fuck like what what drugs were you on well it, it's it's interesting though because it's really like attempted alchemy in some way it's it's really someone trying to take something that exists and it has its value for what it is and they're trying to just like magically turn it into something else like they're literally trying to take the internet that's flowing from my modem downstairs from my router and they're trying to turn it into money somehow you know what i it, it is really just like an attempt at alchemy and i th- that's what you got with late period wcw was this idea that oh we can just take these ideas keep escalating them and combining them and turning them into these different things so you get like the old school like coal miner glove on a pole match coal miner's glove (laughs) uh that's what happens when you don't gimmick a wheel for a match where you randomly select the gimmick from the wheel (laughs) that's a it's even scarier if it was the idea. It's even scarier if it was supposed to be a coal miner's glove match. And then what they turned that into was a pinata on a pole match. Or like I said, a Judy Bagwell on a forklift match. They went, okay, this is an idea that has kind of worked once or twice. And we have this other stupid idea that we think will make money. Let's combine the two. And what you get, like I said, is a pinata on a pole match which doesn't is not is not just racist it's most importantly racist but it is also terrible wrestling to watch so it's it's racist it's terrible wrestling to watch and they also use that exact same airtime to do a parody of someone with a disability it's the worst conceivable use of tv time like it's hard to think of something more wasteful and more fuck you for caring that they could have possibly put on tv than a piñata on a pole match i mean it just spits in the face of like Everybody who cared about the luchadors, everybody who tried to invest in that middle part of the card that, like you said, was always so strong. Anybody who had any respect for Jim Ross, who they were parodying there, like it was just so mean and crass and disrespectful and purposeless and a waste of everybody's time, especially those people who created the show. Yeah. And and to me, you see it a lot. It's one of those things. Uh, the end of Enron had this very adversarial idea to it and that's what it feels like oh i should also say the pinata fell off the fucking pole i'm sorry we got away from that but <laughs> the pinata fell, it, it, they botched the whole thing the pinata fell off the pole. which is the one which actually reminds me of enron had a kind of good idea they wanted to do netflix before netflix right they pa- partnered up with blockbuster to do broadband video across the country the problem mm-hmm. is no one had broadband <laughs> The idea that I was going to pay extra to go, like, sit in my house and watch shitty video, shitty quality video be projected onto my cathode ray tube television was an insane idea. <laughs> but they were just like, no, we'll, we'll go with it. It'll totally work. And then they did the mark-to-market accounting of it of just, oh, no, no, it's a hugely successful thing. We totally, we made $10 billion on it. <laughs> And that's what Vince Russo says about the pinata and a pole match. He literally says something to the effect of, well, I, they were watching the, the cruiserweights at least. And it's like, no, that's not the point. You could have done something way better with your time and your energy than offend everyone with half a brain and even people with less than half a brain. 
it's just pretty crazy. Like we, like as, as, as people who came of age during that time, it's pretty wild to look back on, like I said, just like the, you said it before, the, the kind of fetishization just of growth and like bigger and better and louder and more and more and more. It's, it's, it's additionally wild for me to look back at this time in wrestling, because like I said, I was, you know, 13, 14, 15, when this stuff was going down in like late middle school, early high school, when you're super duper impressionable. And, and, and just in general, like in the era of the WWE network, going back and like watching these raws and watching these nitros from this era, which is like generally highly regarded. But when you go back with the magnifying glass, it's kind of hard to find the pieces of the whole that are super duper great outside of a few obvious, you know, luminaries. But, but, but it's just wild to me that, yeah, I, I think that it, it, it's just such a moment in time, that late 90s, early 2000s, when the internet was first becoming really, really ubiquitous. Like, if not everybody had it at school, they at least had access to it at work or in the library. Like, not everybody knew the finer points of, like, how exactly email worked or, like, how a search engine functioned or even necessarily how you should type terms and do a search engine. Like, that, is, that knowledge wasn't out there yet. But like the knowledge that the internet with all these possibilities existed, like that was out there. And it's just this crazy, chaotic, like bigger than lifetime, which it's really hard to look back on objectively because at the time there was like, I mean, I, I'm especially talking like, you know, we're straddling kind of attitude era time right around the time that Enron was falling. We're talking right around the same time as 9-11 as well. That like leading up in like 99, 2000, 2001, there's this huge, like bigger is better, more, more, more. And then I think we've looking back on that time through the kind of post 9-11, post Afghanistan and Iraq, post Obama, post Trump or during Trump lens. It's so hard to look back at that time and think that anything that was going on was especially great, even though at the time it was like two thumbs up, full speed fucking ahead. This is fantastic. And that's the key part. That is the key part. The full steam, like the full steam ahead. It was all momentum based. They were all too big to fail. They were just constantly going in this, this forward motion. And it's not just growth. It's propulsion forward. It's this idea that you constantly have to be innovating, that anything that came before, and this is something we said earlier, isn't valuable. It's not, it's, it's such a different world. And it's like, no, it's going to be an evolution of the world that we're in. It's not going to be completely different. It's going to be a more intense version of the stuff that's already happening. And people thought that they could either figure out, which is kind of what Enron was trying to do, what was going to be the next big thing, or they were trying to live off of what had come before, which is what Enron was actually doing on the back end of everything. And and what you see, especially for WCW, is this idea of once they realized, like, oh, shit, things are changing, they tried to build this meta-narrative about themselves this they but it was still based on the same idea that same that one good idea which is that we're not wwf but the problem is is wwf at the time had figured out that that was what they were doing against them in the same way that eventually all of the tricks that enron had done were no longer working because people were starting to see through them and that's what changed on the internet is you could now go and say what's actually going on and you may not get the exact answer, but you would have a much better idea of like, why is Hogan winning? 
Oh, because he has creative control. Oh, because of this. Oh, because of that. You understood the internal mechanisms of the company. So it no longer felt like this big, mysterious thing. It felt like a bunch of guys that had no fucking clue what they were doing. Absolutely. I'll tell you who else doesn't have a fucking clue about what they're doing. Who's that? The following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Me! No, I'm just kidding. I've got a very good idea of what I'm doing, at least when it comes to pitching Patreon. So this is the time in the show when I tell you to go to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. And I'm not asking you to uh, give us any money this week. I'm just asking you to check it out. And maybe if you like what you see, maybe then you can find it in your heart to, you know, give us a little money. Last week, we unveiled our new patron-only feature, the follow-up files. Uh, what I did is I made some kind of follow-up and kind of end notes for last week's episode. Uh, in which I pulled out kind of all the references we made, everything from Charlie Brown to Three Count, and I just gave kind of a brief explanation of what it was that we were talking about. It was something that we glossed over. And in most cases, I either gave you like a link with some follow-up information, either something to read or a video to watch, um, or I gave you a time cue to go check something out on the network. So if you're someone who's kind of intrigued about some of the wrestling moments that we've talked about on this episode of the show, I have good news for you. And that is that this week's follow-up files, follow-up files number two, is going to be available at patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W, even to those of you freeloaders who are not yet giving us any of your fucking money. So, if you're hearing my voice, go to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W and check up the follow-up files for more wrestling goodness, more Nick and Dave flavored goodness, and more excellence. And if you want to continue to get that excellence every week, well, then you got to give excellent people your money. And that means me and Nick. So feel free to sign up to Patreon, just that $1 or $2 level. As long as you give us at least $1, I'll call you out as a sexy wizard on next week's show. And there's all sorts of bonus content that flows from there. More videos that Nick makes, more notes for both our pre-show notes and the follow-up files. So all sorts of ever-expanding content there on the How Wrestling Explains the World Patreon. Please check it out with that free offer this week. Anybody in the world within the sound of my voice can check out the follow-up files. The preceding announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. I think that means it's time for me to ask a question I've been thinking about. Which was a more significant fall from grace? WCW or Enron? You know, I don't really know enough about, like, the energy industry to have great insight about Enron. But when I think about the fall of WCW... Uh, it, it, I just think about wasted potential. Like if you look at what they put together slowly between the time Hulk Hogan got there and the time Bret Hart got there, like that, you know, two or two and a half year stretch, whatever that was, that felt like the first two and a half years of like a 15 year run. And, and they were dead just a couple of years later, you know? So it, it's just almost sad how abrupt it was, what promise they did legitimately have, and then on some level how they just, like, pissed it away. It's it just disappointing. It was a letdown to all of us as fans, and it was a letdown to all the wrestlers in the business who needed a place like that to exist and all the other production folks and all the other people who need the business happen who lost a really viable place to work where the checks were always good. Because when you look at the companies that have replaced WCW in the subsequent years, the checks haven't always gone through, or they've maybe asked you to hang on to it for a couple of weeks. So I think undeniably their fall from grace is just kind of sad. I feel like with Enron, what you have is both the idea that you will get in trouble uh, if you 
fuck up badly enough. But if you're rich enough, you can also get away with some shit you really shouldn't be able to. Like Andy Fastow is out of jail and Jeff Skilling will be out of jail. He was supposed to be in jail for a really long time. Ken Lay died of a heart attack before his sentencing. So they basically like annulled his conviction. They all actually got in trouble, but they screwed up so badly that it feels like they almost got away with something. On top of all of that is the idea that they like never were actually successful. That thing was almost entirely a lie. Like they had a successful trading business and that was it. Every other thing they made up was either a decent idea slightly before its time or without the due diligence to actually make it work. Or it was an idea that misunderstood how what they were doing worked. Kind of feels like Enron as like a allegory for corporate greed will have staying power. Where like WCW has opposed positive and negative connotations with it. So like I, I think ultimately WCW got a better uh, life uh, after death than Enron did, deservedly so. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, WCW lives on through the WWE network, and really, the memory of WCW is one of the things that made them confident going forward with the WWE network. They knew there was a desire for that content, even though the product had ultimately petered out and you know gotten pretty bad, and there were a lot of bad actors involved, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, definitely, WCW maybe is, is, is prettier in the casket than it ever was walking around on the earth, you know? It, it, it's kind of miraculous in that way. It is certainly a, a unique case, but it, it speaks to the power of nostalgia. And there's certainly no nostalgia for fucking Enron, right? <laughs> yeah, d- uh, definitely. Um, I enjoyed Enron Field. Yeah, yeah, that is actually like what I think about that field. Minute, I think it's now Minute Maid Park. It is, it is. I just remember it from whatever MVP baseball games when it was first built. That it was, it was Enron Field, and I think that there was one game that either snuck to release just as or just before the trial was developing. You know how the roster is always wrong in the wrestling game. I think yeah. there was one baseball game for the MVP series where it was still called Enron Field as the Enron scandal was like just really at its worst. Yeah, Enron, uh, Enron Field felt cool. That was what was weird about it. I remember distinctly thinking Enron Field was cool. And then everything happening and being like, that is a bad name for a field. Well, for me, like, I came from quote unquote Silicon Valley, and you know, which has a certain type of unique snobbishness to it. And like my perception of Texas growing up was the stereotypical perception of Texas. I won't do the voice. Uh, but when I heard Enron Field and then that was in Houston, it actually like changed my perception of, of Texas in a way, like at a time in my life, Enron actually changed the way I felt about the culture of a particular part of the country. And that just speaks to what an iconic corporation they were. So while I say, uh, in just a few minutes ago that there's no nostalgia for them, they, they certainly were. Uh, you know, in in their own way, a a really important part of their time and place and not just because of the scandal. Did you have any plugs this week? Yeah, just a couple quick things. You know, as always, please follow me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. If you heard something on the show that you liked or didn't like or thought was funny or thought bombed, uh, feel free to hit me up and tell me about it. I would love to engage you, of course, although I'm already married, so I can't engage you in that sense. Don't try. Also, uh, earlier in the show, I talked a little bit about my kind of feelings on Vince McMahon. In fact, last Friday, uh, before this dropped, was his birthday. So in honor of that, at the Wrestling Estate, we did a little Vince McMahon roundtable. 
And uh, we all talked about some of our favorite Vince moments, favorite Vince matches, what was his biggest mistake, what was his biggest triumph, etc., etc. So uh, you should definitely go check that out over at thewrestlingestate.com. Uh, also, I will plug one final time, patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W, and I will remind you once more that if you can hear this, our follow-up files for this episode are available to you at that URL. I won't say it again because I know you've heard it. And you can check me out at the Nickster, T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. That is on Twitter. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Also, a shout out to Pocket Casts, whoever's using that. They've been getting a lot of episodes. So uh, good, good on you, whoever's using Pocket Casts. And we will be having a new video this week to go along with our episode of the podcast. Uh, it will actually be a separate discussion, Dave and I, are having uh, that will talk about some of the same themes we talked about, but didn't really get to in the uh, wanted to talk about, but didn't get to in this episode. I I think you guys are going to enjoy the new style, but if not, let me know. You don't want them asking you, uh, what, what you fucked up on the video, right? Uh, no, no. I got tired of that in college and that's why I stopped being a film major. Well, hey, good Rich. morning. How are you? Finally, good great, Jeff. Yeah. Good morning, to see you, Todd. Sit down. We've been working hard on this, and we've really pulled out all the stops. Look what we got. Origination. We did $20 million last year. We think we can do $120 million this year. Trading. We did $10 million last year. We think we can do 64 this year. This is the key. We're going to move from mark-to-market accounting to something I call HFV, hypothetical future value accounting Whoa. if we do that we can add a gazillion dollars to the bottom line oh jeff all right that sounds fantastic oh jeff thank you that's just superb performance and you're gonna go far my boy probably president of the company one day you think so i think here among the poor Misinformed, but we have for you to bite your tongue secure.